Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome to the latest edition of the Legal Face Off podcast by WGN Radio, along with our Always host Rich Lenkov. We're actually without Tina Martini today. I am Joe Brand, and we start off with a great guest, Alderwoman Stephanie Coleman. She's going to talk to us about the carjackings in Chicago. Alderwoman Coleman is in the 16th Ward and the Democratic Committeeman. Alderwoman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rich and Joe. I'm so honored to be here. So we've seen an epidemic with carjacking so far in 2021, over 185 in the city so far. Seems like every day we're hearing about new carjackings. Tell us why, first of all, from your perspective, why this crime has jumped up so much in recent times. You know, I think um, when we think of COVID-19 pandemic, of course, the devastation that uh, not only our, our city has experienced, but uh, we as a people, we as a nation uh, has experienced. But there is also another pandemic that that happens on 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 the south and west sides of Chicago uh, that affects us. And uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought more, shed more light onto the other pandemic that we have uh, been living uh, for decades, right? And um, I think that when we get down to a a holistic approach and get down to the root, uh, which is a a disinvestment that has occurred in our communities, when actions like carjackings uh, up 400 percent this year alone, 180, as you said, Rich, I even saw on the news this morning, there were three carjackings. If 12 inches of snow would not have stopped this behavior, what will? Absolutely. Um, So what do you think the solution is? What are you and some of your colleagues on the city council doing to remedy this, uh, this situation? Well, other than uh, I I think that we could all agree that this is a state of emergency, especially as the numbers are still increasing, uh, even with 12 inches of snow outside that I see that's building up, that's stacking up. Um, I have called for uh, just a clarion call for agencies to help and just being extra eyes and ears uh, to observe uh, giving the helpful tips that CPD, uh, that Superintendent Brown has um, has put out a part of his four or five point plan, community plan, but really working with our local districts, our local commanders. I, for one, experienced the carjacking in my ward on Christmas Day with one of my neighbors. Mm-hmm. So not me personally, but it felt like uh, me because she was the same age as my mother and my aunt. And this is a, a lifelong resident who was held at gunpoint on Christmas morning getting gas that she was going to deliver toys to her her grandchildren and her family if it happens to one of us it happens to all of us and it could happen to all of us and what we're really seeing that's interesting and very unfortunate is the age of a lot of the um the carjackers right we're seeing uh, by some accounts kids as young as you know 12 13 14 involved with these carjackings and very frequently uh, guns are involved and and all too frequently there's actual um assaults uh, attacks and people have been beaten up in addition to just taking the cars and we're also seeing you know that some of the carjackings have been for 
just joyriding, which is, you know, tough. It's one thing if you're selling the car, nothing that makes it right, nothing that makes it, you know, uh, not criminal, but you understand maybe a little more. If it's just joyriding and you're beating up some poor resident of Chicago just to take the car in a joyride, that's a little bit hard to get your head around. Yeah, it's you wonder, well, what's the point? What, what was the point of it all? And I think that there are certain influences in our neighborhoods uh, on the adult level uh, that are getting these kids. And that's why education is so important. That's why, um, again, those wraparound services and investment and development and quality housing, quality education is so important uh, to deter young people away from those behaviors and those influences. I don't think that a 10 year old would wake up and say, I'm going to hold someone at gunpoint without being influenced by someone else or influenced by uh, the video games and, and these games that I've been hearing about. I don't, I don't, I consciously, Rich and Joe, I don't know about you all, but when I was 10, I wanted to be the pink Power Ranger. <laughs> you know, that was my, that was my grief in life. <laughs> yeah. And it certainly doesn't help that, you know, kids are out of school, right? I mean, that's giving them an opportunity to get into some trouble that they probably wouldn't otherwise be involved in if they were, you know, in a building supervised mm -hmm. partially in, in schools. Alder woman, mm -hmm. talk to us about and the- And I really hope uh, that our, our- I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's why we're hoping, uh, you know, as we kind of briefly uh, discussed that our leadership really comes together and figure what that looks out, what that, that looks like uh, for all of our students, for the 365,000 students in the city of Chicago. I know you've been involved, Alder woman, with a- um, effort to make gas stations safer because we're seeing a lot of carjackings understandably when people are pumping gas they are ruffling through their wallet they're not paying attention and that's when a lot of carjackings happen talk to us about the 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 leadership that you're providing in at least making that uh, experience with your car safer yeah so operation safe pump uh was birthed from um who I just told you about on Christmas morning, one of my constituents and neighbors who held, was held at gunpoint and we launched Operation Safe Pump, Safe Pump on January uh, 22nd. And so for the next 30 days, we have asked that uh, one of our local agencies, security agency, which is Kate Security and Detective Services, as well as local business leaders like WW Towing, who uh, we've come together. This is when community and government comes together and, and really make Make a difference, right? I want to save the world, but first I've got to save my block and my neighborhood and my community. Uh, so uh, every day from 11 to 1 p.m. and then there's a 6 to 8 p.m. There are different locations that a uh, car is assigned with two officers to just being extra eyes and ears. I have used, uh, I have utilized uh, those locations uh, because I felt protected ever since hearing what happened to my neighbor on the 25th on Christmas day, I had not pumped gas in my neighborhood, but due to operation safe pump, I know that there are different locations and different uh, times accommodating for uh, work schedules and uh, before or after work that I can go at least pump my gas as I'm out serving the residents of the 16th ward. Well, Laura, the last question I have for you on legal face-off is you just touched on um, some private agencies uh, role in fixing this issue. Uh, even though you're a representative, you're a public official uh, as a city council member, it sounds like you feel that it's important to involve not just the government, but you know the community and also private entities in a holistic approach to try to resolve this problem. Talk to us about why you think everyone has a role in this. 
You know, Rich, government, we cannot do it all on our own. Uh, community is really the pulse of what's happening in our 77 beautiful neighborhoods that make up the greatest city in the world. I don't care what anyone says. Chicago is the greatest city in the world. Look at that beautiful skyline behind you. You know, um, it, it takes all of us. It takes community. It takes our churches, our faith-based leaders. It takes wonderful attorneys like yourself. It takes um, media to really tell our narrative and really uh, highlight some of the solutions that when government and community and our faith-based leaders and our, our, our attorney, when everyone comes together to figure this out, I can't, but together we definitely can. And we will uh, change the narrative that Chicago is the greatest city in the entire world. Amen to that. And personally, I wanted to be the blue Power Ranger. I wanted to be Billy. But I can totally resonate. I am still the pink Power Ranger, as you can tell. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> believe that. Alderwoman Coleman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Joe and Rich and Emily. You all have a wonderful week. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Welcome in again to Legal Face Off. We are back with a very special guest, Professor Susanna Sherry from Vanderbilt Law School. Professor Sherry is a professor who concentrates in constitutional law, constitutional history. She has written a textbook on the subject, and her latest publication is entitled Our Kardashian Court and How to Fix It from the Iowa Law Review. Professor, welcome to Legal Face Off. Thank you. So uh, we're talking today as the defense in the Trump impeachment trial has put forth their perspective on the charge against them. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk about the history of impeachment trials, which is one of your expertise, areas of expertise. But what do you make of some of the defenses put forth by the new Trump legal uh, defense team today? We know over the weekend a lot of his lawyers quit. So what do you think of some of the defenses put forth today, which include... Um, that uh, he is, it's, it's not a permissible trial because Trump has left office. And also, this was merely an exercise of his constitutionally protected free speech. Um, well, let me start with the, the first one because I think that's easier. Uh, it, it, 
he can definitely be tried after he leaves office. Um, that's what the history suggests. That's what the text of the Constitution suggests. That's what precedent suggests. I can go into detail on all of those. Um, but the Senate has done this before. They have tried, uh, they tried uh, a former Secretary of War. William Belknap in 1876 after he resigned. Um, you also have to remember that he was in, that Trump was impeached before he resigned, and so then it's just a question of whether he can be tried. Again, as as uh, I said, we can go into some more detail about that. But I want to I want to talk about the the second question. Or would you like to do that now? Because you know that's an area where I think it confuses a lot of people, and honestly, a lot of our listeners and a lot of people in general sometimes confused being impeached with being convicted. Can you explain briefly why those two things are different and why that's important? Why that's well, different? They are quite different. It's, it's sort of like in a criminal trial, first you are indicted or charged, and then you have a trial where a jury decides whether you're guilty. Here, the charging body is the House of Representatives, and they did that. They impeached him, which is similar to issuing an indictment if it were a criminal case. And now it goes to the jury and the jury is made up of the Senate and the Senate gets to decide whether to convict him. And it takes uh, two thirds of the senators. It only took a majority of the House to impeach him, but it takes two thirds of the senators to convict him. And if he's not convicted, then nothing happens. It may be a, a stain on his legacy that he was impeached twice, but there are no consequences consequences unless the Senate votes by a two-thirds majority to convict him. And as I mentioned earlier, I know you were going to get to it before I jumped in, but what are your thoughts on one of the defenses being that this was merely a president, a free citizen of the United States, expressing his opinion uh, with regards to what should be the outcome of the election and what should happen with the Electoral College uh, voting that we saw on January 6th? Well, I think that's a question for the Senate to decide. That's essentially a factual question, whether he uh, was uh, simply exercising, uh, simply giving his opinion, or whether he was, in fact, inciting an insurrection. That's, that's the, the question on the merits that the Senate has to decide. Uh, also, the fact that he might not be criminally liable, that is, that what he said might, in fact, be protected free speech in some way, and it might he might not be subject to any criminal uh, penalties, does not mean that he can't be impeached and convicted. Because as the president of the United States, he has, for example, a duty to, uh, to um, enforce the laws. And by what he said, and then by the long delay before he condemned the insurrectionists before he condemned the rioters. And then when he did so, he did so very equivocally, sending a very mixed message. That might be some sort of dereliction of duty for which he essentially could be impeached. So let's talk about the procedure a little bit, which you alluded to earlier. We know, having now watched this for a week and having watched the last Trump impeachment trial, it's hard to say those words, right? That this is the second presidential impeachment uh, proceeding. But we know that, like you mentioned, two thirds of the Senate have to vote. In this case, that will be 67 senators. There doesn't appear, at least now politically, to be 17 Republicans who across the aisle. But let's see what the trial uh, produces. What kind of evidence do we expect to hear from both sides? For example, I just saw uh, I was watching CNN and uh, a professor was saying how 
much she would like to hear from someone who was in the office with Trump while this was going on to see really what, you know, what, what, what he was saying uh, behind closed doors. What kind of evidence, what type of um, exhibits, what kind of witnesses will we hear from during the trial? Um, that's going to be up to the Senate to decide and up to the, the parties as to what they're going to present. My best guess is there probably won't be a lot of witnesses uh, or evidence. It's mostly going to be sort of the public record of his rally and what he said and what he did and that sort of thing. And then, of course, what the rioters did. Um, and and a lot of the a lot of what will be presented will be more of an, uh, more like an argument about, as you say, why he, he um, should be convicted or why he shouldn't. Professor, it sounds like you are unequivocal in the idea that it doesn't matter that Trump has left office. That should not be a bar to trying him. We've had some other opinions on our show, most recently from Alan Dershowitz about two weeks ago, who felt very strongly in favor of the idea that once a president leaves office, the Constitution does not permit him or her to be convicted, even when the alleged impeachable offense happens while they're in office. Can you explain why you feel that he's wrong and that your position is correct? Well, first of all, he's one of the very few constitutional law professors who feels that way. That is um, something like 170 constitutional law professors signed a letter um, that said that he, he could be tried. Uh, after uh, leaving office, including many uh, law professors who are members of the Federalist Society, for example, very conservative. Uh, but uh, the, the first thing to remember is I don't know that, that Professor Dershowitz talked much about whether there was a difference between impeachment and conviction. It, even if he's right, and I don't think he is, but even if he were right that a, a former president couldn't be impeached, the Constitution says the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. And he was impeached before he left office. And nobody can question that. He, would, he could definitely be impeached before he left office. And so, so now you have to say, well, even though he was impeached, and even though the Senate has the power under the Constitution to try all impeachments, that's the constitutional language, uh, Professor Dershowitz is essentially arguing, well, not all impeachments, really, just the ones that uh, get tried before he leaves office. Um, it's also, um, the Senate's done this before. Um, as I think I mentioned, in 1876, the Secretary of War, uh, William Belknap, resigned just before he was impeached. And nevertheless, he was both impeached and tried after he, uh, after he, was, uh, he left office. Um, the text of the Constitution also allows two separate uh, consequences for uh, uh, on conviction. One of them is removal from office, and that's automatic on conviction. But the Constitution also allows disqualification to hold any future office, and that takes a separate vote, so that's not automatic. And there's a comma between the, those two clauses, between those two punishments. And so it means they are each independent, they are each important, and the disqualification can still be imposed, even if he can't be removed, uh, he can't be removed uh, from, uh, from office. And then yeah. finally, in 1789, when the Constitution was adopted, uh, both in Britain and in many of the states, former officers could be and were impeached and convicted. Um, and in fact, several states had bans on uh, impeaching 
uh, current officers. You could only impeach former officers. And the reason was that they that some of these states worried that allowing impeachment of current officers would give the legislature too much power to threaten or control the executive. And in fact, in the Constitutional Convention that wrote the U.S. Constitution, there were some members who thought that the uh, current officers shouldn't be impeachable. Um, only former officers. Now, they were on the minority side, and so the, the, our Constitution allows the conviction of the impeachment and conviction of current officers. And, and so that suggests that, of course, you can try and can, uh, you can impeach and try former officers. I think those are all great points. Let's put that, all of that aside. And hypothetically, if there was no precedent, there was nothing in our history that addressed this issue. You know, one of the goals of any prosecution is always not only to punish, you know, wrongful behavior, but also to prevent it, to create an example for those in the future. So let's assume there was no precedent. Shouldn't we, as a democracy, frown upon and disincentivize behavior such as was engaged by the president in his closing days? Otherwise, you would have a president who felt at the end of his term on his way out of office or any executive that simply because they're leaving, they can't be held accountable for actions held while they were in office or, or occurred while they held office. Again, you don't have to be pro-Trump or anti-Trump to believe on the idea that there must be some accountability on the way out of office. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, it's even worse because, um, as the example of Belknap shows, a president wouldn't even have to be on his way out. He could do whatever he wanted. And then if the, the House was about to impeach him, he could resign. And then he would not be subject to, if un, under the, the, the theory that Professor Dershowitz and a few others are propounding, or, well, a lot of the Republican politicians are propounding, he could not be held accountable at all. And as you say, that would sort of open the floodgates to bad actors who wanted to take advantage of the, uh, their position as president. They would be able to do so knowing that they could evade any responsibility and could even, for example, run for office again um, and and there would be nothing there would be nothing to, to stop them and and um, executive corruption that is sort of unaccountability and irresponsible executive was one of the things that worried the founders of the Constitution most because they were inventing this new thing called a president right there'd never there'd been legislatures they didn't have much power but there'd never been anything called a president and in most of the states the governors were very weak they didn't have very many powers the idea was we didn't want a king so why should we have much of an executive branch at all. But the, the, the men who wrote the Constitution realized that we needed a strong executive to hold the country together and to do things like prosecute wars um, and all of that. But they, they had to figure out a way to keep him accountable. And impeachment, including post-office impeachment, was an important part of that. Professor, last question, really fascinating uh, discussion. Um, Will Trump get a fair trial? You know, due process, um, uh, equal treatment at trials is very important to us. And will he get a fair trial, understanding that the Constitution says that for a sitting president, 
the chief justice shall preside over the trial. That's not happening now. Chief Justice Roberts is not presiding. And then you might say that you should go to the president pro tem of the Senate, which is Kamala Harris, the vice president. Well, she is not presiding. I think that's a good thing because, you know, there would be outcries of conflict of interest given that Kamala Harris may run for president in, you know, three and a half years, four years against possibly the defendant in this case. So now we're having a trial uh, that is presided over by Patrick Leahy of Vermont. Is Trump getting a fair trial, given that the judge, so to speak, is a Democrat who's been, you know, in the Senate for, for many years, who presumably will vote against against Trump? I think he is getting a fair trial. A couple of points on that. First, if if I were Trump, I think I would rather that Leahy preside than that Harris preside, because as president pro tem of the Senate, she could decide that she was entitled to break ties, in which case um, you have an extra Democratic vote. This way, with Leahy in charge, you don't have an extra Democratic vote. He can't, he can't break ties. Um, the other thing is, when it is not the president who is being tried, um, it is ordinary Senate business, right? So whoever is running the Senate gets to run the trial. Why then do we have the, the chief justice running the trial when it's the president? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple, because at least when a president is in office, you don't want the vice president running that trial, because if the president is impeached, guess who gets to be president? So the, the putting the the um, chief justice in charge it was to avoid a conflict of interest uh, on behalf of the president, the vice president, who would become president if the president was impeached. That one of the founders, one of the um, uh, drafters of the Constitution, essentially said something along the lines of uh, the uh, the vice president. Somebody was uh, worried that the vice president would collude with the president. Uh, to avoid conviction. And uh, somebody else said something like, well, if that's the case, that would be the first heir who ever loved his father, uh, suggesting that, no, they would collude against the president. Um, and so there's really no need for the chief justice to do it here. Professor Susanna Sherry from Vanderbilt Law School also went to law school in Hyde Park, not too far from where we are today. I'm sure you don't miss the uh, blizzard that we've had here over the last couple of days. We really appreciate your time on Legal Face Off, and please come back anytime, Professor. Will do. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Moving on here with the Legal Face-Off podcast brought to you by WGN Radio. We've got Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand, and our next guest, Elliot Stein, a senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And of course, the craze on the stock market just last week, Rich, and now Robinhood trying to uh, limit some of the buying of stocks. Absolutely, Elliot. Thanks for joining us. Obviously, uh, one thing you can count on whenever there is news like this, especially on Wall Street, is litigation. That's what we cover on our show. So talk to us first about maybe explain to our listeners who are still getting their heads around what happened here uh, in, 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 
in a quick summary, if you can, why there were lawsuits, and then we'll talk about the merit of the lawsuits. Sure, sounds great. Thanks a lot for having me, Richard. I really appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, you know, as you said last week, we had extreme volatility in the stock market in, um, you know, a few particular stocks, including GameStop, AMC, and some others. Uh, a lot of that was fueled by talk on uh, some Reddit chat groups um, who, where you had users who thought that some of those stocks were undervalued. Um, and, and you also had, and part of the reason they thought it was undervalued was that they, there were these extreme short positions on the other side. And so the folks on Reddit thought they could maybe capitalize on that and drive up the stock, which is what wound up happening. As a result of that, you had brokers like Robinhood and Schwab um, and a few others um, put in certain uh, restrictions. Uh, they, you know, they, they didn't all do the exact same types of restrictions. Uh, Robinhood for a while um, restricted buying in some of these names. About that and sued Robinhood um, because they weren't allowed to continue taking advantage of the increase in the stock prices in those names. All right. So, yeah, as of Monday, as you mentioned, Robinhood itself was the defendant in at least 33 federal lawsuits and te- uh, in 10 different states. And the allegations are that it violates uh, security laws. So um, without getting into a deep dive, because securities law can be very complicated, uh, talk to us about what exactly is being alleged that Robinhood did and whether you think these lawsuits will survive basic, uh, you know, basic motions to dismiss. Sure. So the allegations are actually more than just securities law violations, and, and they really bring a whole ton of different claims, right, from breach of contract to breach of the implied covenant of good faith to negligence claims, breach of fiduciary duty. Um, you have uh, some fraud claims in there, market manipulation claims. You have some antitrust claims in there as well. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, Robinhood and these other brokers have a great argument, and that is that the customer agreements essentially gave them a broad discretion to restrict trading in almost any way they wanted for any reason. And so that's going to undermine almost all of these suits, all of the claims. So I don't see these claims going very far. At some point, they may be consolidated. Um, but, but I think the brokers, including Robinhood, have strong arguments to win on a motion to dismiss. Yeah, and it certainly seems like public sentiment is in favor of these kind of trades. And it's not hard to imagine that people don't like don't enjoy seeing Wall Street on the defense, right? So a lot of what we talk about on our show is that while sometimes lawsuits like this and class action lawsuits might not be meritorious down the road, a lot of it depends on politics and public sentiment. And in this case, it would seem to me like these public, these lawsuits, at least at the beginning, have a lot of impetus behind them. And that obviously influences judges, right? Well, I mean... I think it certainly influences the, the court of public opinion. Um, and, you know, some of the allegations are that, that the customers are bringing the allegations that conspired with hedge funds who had short positions in these stocks and so that there was some sort of nefarious activity going on. Um, the problem is the complaints don't actually have any specifics of any sort of agreement like that. And, you know, as you know, in order to survive a lawsuit, you have to have something plausible, at least. And if you're bringing fraud type claims, it's an even higher standard, right? You have to show the who, the what, the where, the when, the why of the agreement. 
And these complaints at this point don't come anywhere close to meeting those standards, even for the lower plausibility standard. What about specifically the collusion claims? What are your thoughts on that? Well, the, the same thing. The, the complaints just don't have, they, they don't cite to any allegation that there was an agreement. Um, and beyond that, um, where there are perfectly good reasons for parallel conduct, an antitrust claim is very hard to bring. And here, the brokers had good reason to restrict trading, and that was because the clearinghouses, um, which require um, collateral from the brokers, uh, increased those collateral requirements. Uh, and so the brokers had to sort of you know, push the pause button to sort of regroup in order to meet those collateral requirements. All right, so the lawsuits are going nowhere, in your opinion. What about congressional action? Congress has talked about uh, holding hearings. What do you think the regulators will do in the wake of, of what's, what we've seen last week, if anything? <clears throat> well, right, like you said, they're, they're already having hearings starting, I think, February 18th. So, you know, that, that's going to put, um, you know, it's going to put a spotlight on the practices. Uh, there's going to be a lot of talk. Anything that comes out legislatively is going to take a long time, as you know, if it, if it even passes. Um, in terms of enforcement, there's no doubt that the regulators are investigating. Um, whether you know the investigations will go anywhere is a different matter. Um, you know, and, and there's there's a whole variety of things for regulators to look at, right? Sort of the high level of short interest in a lot of these names. Whether um, you know the talk in these chat rooms rose to the level of manipulation, I doubt it did. Um, and then they'll look at the brokers and whether any of the um, steps they took to restrict trading, you know, meets the allegations that, that some of these uh, customers have brought as well. But, you know, like I said, I, I don't I don't see those going anywhere. They may the, the regulators may also look uh, to see whether the, the brokers allowed their customers to engage in um, trades that, you know, maybe weren't appropriate for them. And we've already seen the state of Massachusetts file a complaint, a, 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 an administrative complaint to that effect back in December before all this craziness started. Elliot, last question I have. Is this whole phenomenon a sign of, you know, the, the coronavirus where we have so many people at home and especially, you know, the younger generation who drove some of this, you know, they're bored and they're learning how to do this. Is this a phenomenon of, you know, deregulation in the industry, democratization of trading? What, what, do, you, what do you chalk this all up to? I think that some of it, and certainly Robinhood has benefited from the work from home situation that everyone finds themselves in, right? Because they've seen their user base increase uh, monumentally. Um, the other thing we've seen in the industry is that there are no commissions anymore. There's, there's no fee to trade, right? So it's a very low entry for people to trade. And so that's another reason why everyone who wants to trade, you know, can jump in. And so, you know, these are all things the regulators are going to look at, but, but certainly... The current situation, I think, helped foster that. You can follow Elliot on Twitter at NYC Stein. Elliot, thanks so much for joining us from the Northeast. Hopefully you're not getting hit with that snow that we just did earlier this week. Too bad. Thanks so much, guys. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is 
also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will, and Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast brought to you by WGN Radio. Our next guest is State Representative Maurice West of the 67th House District in Rockford, Illinois. Maurice, also an award-winning music composer and founder of the West Melodies. State Representative, how are you today? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing well. Rich, uh, the state rep introduced a bill last year to educate children on the dangers of sexting and hasn't really picked up the momentum that he had hoped for. Yeah, Representative, you were on the show to talk to us about this bill originally. And Mm -hmm. uh, during the pandemic, it's become even more pronounced why this is an important piece of legislation. Explain to us what's developed since you were last on Legal Face Up. Well, what's developed since the last time I've been on on here, and thank you for having me, um, is that everyone has gone remote. Everyone has gone digital in some way, including our our students. And so now I'm getting calls and having conversations with people saying that they're having sexting issues with our young people um, via WebEx or Zoom or whatever uh, video conferencing host that they use. Um, and so it's just showing that even now, now more than ever, that we need to have this conversation with our young people. And your bill, uh, explain your bill. The underlying issue is that people who are underage are sexting each other, inappropriate material, sometimes pornographic material, sometimes material that literally constitutes a crime. Uh, yeah. Talk to us about why you first came up with the idea for the bill, what the underlying problem is. So this idea came from a constituent of mine who said that this would be something that we should definitely work on. Um, adding it to the sexual sex ed curriculum of the school districts that have it. So I'm, we're not forced. This bill is not forcing schools to do a uh, sex ed curriculum. But those who have it, adding this sexting conversation to the curriculum, explaining um, the cons to sexting how the short-term pleasures definitely can lead to long-term consequences and what that really means. Yeah, and we've talked on this show before with some experts, and, and literally some of what's going on uh, between you know the cell phones, some of it's fairly innocuous, and some of it you could chalk up to regular teenage material, but literally some of it borders on and actually you know falls into criminal behavior um, mm-hmm. be it you know sharing graphic images for underage people which is a crime or yep. there's some stalking issues involved there's some you know assault issues what has your research into this issue revealed as to what is actually being transmitted between um, some of your constituents yeah so so I had to meet with some students and tell them that if you get charged with this you can get hit with a child pornography um, charge. Uh, at a young age, even if you're underage, sending it to another underage person is still considered child pornography. Um, another thing that I've seen in my uh, conversations is that this makes sexing makes it a lot easier for sexual predators and human traffickers to target young people. So um, sharing this kind of information with our students will help them to think twice before they do that. Representative, um, 
What is the current status of the bill? Obviously, you know, last year was a rough year for Springfield. Yeah. We talked last episode about the fact there's only really three new laws coming into effect in the state in 2021. I know right. that you're going back to session shortly here. Um, but given the pandemic and the restrictions on your ability to legislate, what are the prospects for this and other other pieces of legislation you're trying to pass? I'm, I'm really hopeful about this one. Um, I passed it out of the House unanimously, 110 to zero, um, the day before we shut down because of COVID. So it was on its way to the Senate, and I was confident that it would have passed easily in the Senate. So um, this is one of my top bills to pass as quickly as possible. Um, just sharing with my uh, colleagues that we've done this before, and, and, and 2020 has shown that there's more reasons for this to happen. You can follow State Representative Maurice West on Twitter at State Rep West. Also check out his website, StateRepWest.com. State Representative, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. to the legal grab bag segment of our legal face-off podcast here on WGN Radio. Along with Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. Our two guests today, Trish Poe, Claims and Risk Management Leader at Allied Public Risk. Trish, how are you today? Very well, thank you. And Trish is a fellow, a fellow Husky, fellow NIU alum. Yes, miss those minus 64 degree days walking through campus and going to class. Absolutely. Yeah, good times. We've also got John Bolger, comedian and personality at WGN Radio. You can find his work at johnbolger.com. John, we already talked about your hair, but how's everything else going for you today? Digging it with a shovel, Joe. It's uh, literally <laughs> a shovel out there. Where, uh, but we're used to it in Chicago. I think we know how to handle our snow. We're good. Absolutely. All right, Rich, let's just dive right into it. Unfortunately, kind of a, a somber topic to start off as the COVID pandemic has hit all these schools pretty hard. Sounds like Buffalo teachers are dealing with some of those same health concerns that Chicago teachers are. And then uh, a, a pretty sad case over in Michigan with a high school athlete uh, passing. Yeah, well, lots of lots of litigation, right? Inevitably, there's going to be legal uh, stories and legal action involving this. We picked a couple. There's one in, as you mentioned, in Buffalo, where a judge ruled against a teachers union that was pushing to delay in-person treatment, something we're dealing with right now in Chicago. Uh, we know, of course, that the Chicago school public school system uh, is fighting with the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, there has been litigation uh, filed. We actually had Jesse Sharkey on a couple episodes of Legal Face Off ago talking about, he's the head of the CTU, Chicago Teachers Union, um, talking about his legal efforts to prevent in-person teaching. There's also a story in Michigan where there was a lawsuit filed um, against the high school system for preventing contact sports, preventing football. And they allege that that was a violation of um, several constitutional rights, including the right of education and the right of free speech. So the overall theme here, uh, Trish and John, is whether these lawsuits are the proper venue. In other words, should judges and juries decide what is safe? We know that there's no easy answer, right? We know that while everyone would like kids back in school, either for the athletics like in the Michigan case, or um, to have in-person learning like in Buffalo, we want our kids back in school and in public school because we see that in many cases, the science is on the, is on the side of having kids in class. Yet teachers unions are you know, largely not in favor of that. We see that in Chicago and a lot of parents are concerned. So 
Is the legal system a good remedy for this? Trish, what do you think? Well, you know, uh, Rich, thanks. I, I feel like mental health is the new pandemic, right? So these kids are dealing with sitting at home. Um, they're unable to participate in the sports, which we know is, is great for well-being and a good sense of accomplishment and teamwork. And um, I haven't seen successful lawsuits that um, have been proposed in legal arguments to go against these orders. So um, I'm not sure that the legal system is equipped or at least has a history of um, deciding these arguments. So I haven't seen them personally go anywhere, and I have not seen a, a final resolution to any of these lawsuits. Yeah, and inevitably, uh, John, inevitably what these lawsuits, at least the one like in Michigan, where they're alleging that you're violating constitutional rights by keeping kids from playing sports. Inevitably, what they're alleging is that the governor, the chief executive, doesn't have the authority to make these decisions. But that's been rejected by courts for the last year. We've seen that in Illinois, where several you know downstate lawsuits allege that Governor Pritzker didn't have the authority to impose bans and restaurant bans, and and you know the courts have uniformly rejected that. At the end of the day, it seems like you might not agree with a particular. Um, you know, regulation resulting from COVID, but someone's got to have the authority to do that. And courts have ruled that governor, at least in, in our state and in, in other states like Michigan, have that authority. Yeah, I mean, it's healthy body, healthy mind. It's, I think there's a lot of different components to it. So in this particular case that they were doing in Michigan, it was weird because they did allow contact sports like football, but didn't allow ice hockey. And to me, now you're parsing. It's either it's kind of like the cupcake rule when you bring stuff for your birthday when you're a kid. It's like all or none. So you can't just signal out of the car and go see all these fast cars that are driving. Oh, that's fantastic. But the one that has ice skates in it, no dice. Like you can't you can't legislate those components. You'd have to try or compartmentalize them. You want to try and be proper, knowing that there might be nuance. But I mean. If, if people can handle it themselves, let them handle it. If they try and but, go through but the devil's advocate, but, but, the, but the opposite argument is, and listen, I'm like in favor of getting the kids back ASAP. I think that the science supports getting them back. But the proponents of these, these regulations would say, we don't know. I mean, you might be right that all sports are the same, but we don't know. And in a pandemic where there's, you know, millions of people dying, you should err on the side of caution. That's the argument in agreed. favor. Agreed, agreed. I think that's a... It's a compelling argument because it's rational. I think what happens, though, is you'd have to now show me why that sport is different and how it's effectively spreading the virus. And if the science matches, then I'm all in. Because now I'm saying, ah, then not then one, one or all or none. But if you show me where it says the same components as the sport that's being allowed, that, that's where you run into a problem. Because I, when things lay on top of each other, people are going to have questions. Just human beings are going to be like, wait. If I can do this, why can't I do that? If you show me the science behind it, I'm all in. Because now I'll go, here's why you can't do it. Here are the specifics. I mean, I was, as an ex-athlete, I, I love sports, but I, I don't love sports that more than my life. <laughs> you know? Moving on to the new president and his brother, Frank. As the president's brother says, he doesn't use the Biden name to gain clients, Rich. But there was an ad for his law firm on Inauguration Day. I mean, not a good, not a good luck. By the way, who even knew there was a guy named Frank Biden? No, no one's ever heard of this guy. He he's quickly becoming the uh, 
what was Jimmy Carter's brother again? The guy who uh, was so Billy Beer. Beer. Billy. Yeah, Billy, Billy Beer. He's cool. Can become the Billy Carter of the uh, of the new presidency. But yeah, this guy is not an attorney, but he's a senior advisor to a law firm in Florida called Berman Law Group, and he is using his connection, his name to basically sell the product, which is, in this case, legal services. There's an ad that ran that focuses on a lawsuit that the firm is leading against a group of Florida sugarcane companies. It has a a photo of Frank Biden, along with quotes regarding his relationship with the incoming president and the family name. Um, He's, you know, of course, denying that he's trying to solicit clients, but it's not a complicated legal argument. He's out there shilling for a law firm specifically referencing his connection to his brother for a president that came into office talking about reforming things and, you know, changing the culture of the Trump administration where there was all sorts of impropriety. Trish, this is not a good start for Biden and his brother, Frank. Yeah. The facts are not, uh, not good for them. The Bidens on this one, it's not new. Um, The Trump administration was definitely pushing this, narrative well before the election and here we did we got in 20 not even 24 hours on inauguration day and his brother is touting the name and by no coincidence the advertisement comes out on inauguration day in the business news where you know people are going to be tapping into the news and um, finding out what they missed at the inauguration so not a good look and also on their website they're peddling government relations right so um you know i i don't think this looks good for the bidens bolger i'm not a believer at all in the fake news idea and the fa- and the and the you know trump criticism that all media is biased but i gotta say objectively why isn't this a bigger story you haven't heard much about this story in the couple months you know since it's been it's been on the news it should be a much bigger story in my mind so the th- here's the a couple things. Number one, he's not a lawyer. He's not. He just is. He's employed by the law firm. He doesn't have a juris doctorate. He's not a lawyer. So this is a marketing tactic. Now, is right. it illegal? No, it's not illegal. Is it frowned upon? Yes, completely frowned upon. Because here's the deal: you came in as the person who doesn't do this, and the first thing Frank does is do this. So I think the problem that you're going to have, like I come from a family of five. If I use my brother, who's a three-star general, if I use his name. It's not illegal, but it's a douche move. It's really, <laughs> it's just it's dumb. That's it's the legal stupid. term for it. That's yeah. the legal knock knock off the legalese, Bolger. Speak to us in terms we can understand. It's because I, I think part of it is really because he, here's the thing: at a party, like the White House press people just said, "Yeah, we don't like this either." So that's the correct response. Now, what's that going to look like at a family gathering? It ain't going to look good. I can just tell you that because it's going to be one of those. Hey, man, what the hell are you doing? kind of a thing and properly rightly so because i don't i don't just because i'm someone's brother doesn't mean jack it doesn't mean anything i mean i could be the black sheep of the family or smarter than them it's it's irrelevant it's a marketing tactic it's and we should see it for what it is it's a marketing well if the, if the law firm is listening then i think bolger services are available i'm just saying that <laughs> you might you might be available i'm in boca too from time to time there you go well, speaking of things being frowned upon, uh, I think anyone who was caught doing the whip in the nay-nay could fall under that category as well. Speaking of which, Atlanta rapper Silano is now being charged with murder of his cousin, and it, he's just got a long list of uh, legal problems. 
So first of all, when you did that, by the way, everyone, uh, Joe Brand is the master of segues. He could go from, you know, a dead dog story in the case of case and parlance to an upbeat song. And he does it with such grace and articulation. I thought you were going to say, speaking of things that are frowned upon murder, the next story involves murder. <laughs> murder is generally frowned upon, but yeah. And also, by the way, props to you to know, is it Silento or Silento? I'm not quite sure. See, I can't bring much to the table. I think you just said my only strength. I, I'm not honestly sure. I was never a fan of this song in, in college. I, I just never really liked it. One of the most annoying songs in the history. My kids still do it nonstop you know, on occasion. I'm not sure they'll still be doing it uh, in the wake of the possible murder conviction. But yes, yeah, Silento or Silento has, as you mentioned, a long track history that led up to his being, arrest, uh, being arrested uh, a few days ago for murder. So his background includes being arrested for driving 143 miles an hour. This is in October 2020 um, in Georgia. And he was pulled over at 3 a.m. when they saw his white BMW swerving around slower cars. And uh, he said he was going 143 miles an hour because he's not a regular person. Then in August of 2020, he was arrested for alleged assault and domestic violence. He was caught walking into some random home in the Valley Village neighborhood in L.A., where, by the way, my brother happens to live uh, in Valley Village. I don't know if it's my brother's home, but he was walking in there holding a hatchet. And then finally, um, his first arrest was back in 2017 when he was stopped leaving the country um, and he was held in uh, United Arab Emirates because uh, a local promoter alleged that he owed them 300,000 dirhams, 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 whatever the pronunciation of that currency is, for failing to appear at a show. Well, that all, my friends, led to his latest arrest, as I mentioned. The allegation is that Ricky Hawk, which is his real name, uh, he murdered his cousin, Frederick Rooks, in DeKalb County in Georgia. Uh, he is currently uh, in jail for that. So, Boulder, I know you're a huge fan of Whippanene, and and most, you know, yes, one hit, one, most one-hit one wonder songs. Um, you know, you love Mamba Number no. Five. I gotta uh, go with Lou Bega. Love Lou Bega. Yeah. Um, uh, what, honestly, what's so bizarre about this is um, the, his jacket is so large, and, I, and what is his name again? Cilantro, Cilantro, Cilento. Cilento is now. Cilantro is a cilantro is a, a spice. A spice, yeah. He's he's, he's prisoner number three six five four seven dash two. Moving yes. your hair back and forth, least of your problems right now in the cell block. Um, I what what's so shocking is like it, it, you guys are in court all the time. You like see the jacket, and you're just like, wow, who could have saw this coming? I'm completely baffled with the hatchet wandering around and going eight. 85, 90 miles, which would be reckless driving in any ballpark. It's just the amount of things he did that led to the violence is very easy to link. I mean, you could see that he had a bunch of domestic abuse charges, too, where you're like, yeah, yeah, this is not hard to see. Yeah, Trish, some would say that listening to that song over and over, let alone being the one responsible for it, would drive anyone to a life of crime. Certainly, I feel like sometimes when I hear Watch Me Whip, watch me nay nay then i want to go out and take a hatchet to you know someone but what do you think of the causal connection between that song and a life of crime well i wish i knew more of the lyrics to whip and nay nay for the purposes of our discussion today 
However, I wasn't a big fan. I just know the chorus. So um, the way I see it, you know, he's not a normal person talking about mental health issues and, and things that we could have done to prevent a death of his cousin leading up to it, as it is alleged. Um, you know, there's, there's somebody should have looked at the record and there's a real call for help um, in his domestic violence and his um, actions leading up to this. So it is a shame, but um, I'm guessing Nene on the song and Nene on a future career anytime soon. Ah, I see what you did there. I see what you did. (laughs) By the way, Bolger, Bolger, you mashed up another song in there, by the way. You said whip your hair back and forth. That's, I'm not sure if uh, that's Willow. That's Willow. I'm not sure if Willow Smith is accused of murder, but you're no, and I, I can't, I can't interlink those two. That's a douche move on my part. Now, what's up with that? Because murder, hatchet, like no, no, that's bad. Yeah, the the nene is a little weird. Now I'm, I'm never going to be able to listen to it again without a what the. Uh. I just think we should eliminate any songs that tell you how to dance. Stanky leg, cha-cha slide. They should have stopped at the twist and and just been done with it. Uh, Staying on the music side of things, Mariah Carey's sister Allison is calling her sister Mariah heartless, vicious, vindictive, despicable for publicly humiliating her in her recent book. Yeah, Mariah Carey wrote a book uh, in 2020 called The Meaning of Mariah Carey. That was a bestseller. And Mariah Carey's sister is now suing her over the disclosure of certain family secrets. She's saying that um, this has caused her additional stress in addition to what she actually had to endure in real life as a result of this family trauma. And that the disclosure of this uh, these episodes has now caused her additional mental anguish. To the tune of, let's say, 1.25 million. Uh, Trish, you and I deal with lots of, lots of frivolous lawsuits every single day, and we wonder how people come up with these numbers. And I'll just say that 1.25 million uh, seems like a lot for this. What she's alleging is that some of the stories involve um, her and her sister, Mariah. She says that uh, uh, she calls up Mariah for accusing her of burning her with boiling tea. Uh, there's some episodes involving their mother and alleged abuse at the hands of the mother. Uh, she also says that she was uh, made to go into a car with a boyfriend who had a, who had a gun. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, regardless of what the allegations are, she's not suing, very interestingly, for defamation, right? Because the defense to defamation is what? The truth. So it sounds like she's not saying that these allegations are not true, simply that their disclosure has caused her mental anguish. Well, you know, I I would say that's the price for living with Mariah. That's the least of her problems. Imagine all the drama involved with having Mariah in your family for years and years. But, but Bolger, where do you stand on the measure of damages for this kind of case? Cry me a river. I'm the youngest of five. I mean, this is just life in humanity. If you're going to bitch and moan about every little thing that happened in your family, if it's legitimately true, we have something that happens at the time. We have DCF, we have family services. We have, we have things that we do then. When I'm just looking like, oh no, I don't like how that makes me look now. Well, tough titty, said the kitty. There's no way, I, I, don't, I don't have an ounce of, of pet compassion for it because you could have brought all these up a long time ago if that was legitimately the cause. If you're looking for a payday, that makes sense. If you're, if you're truly upset and hurt, 
You go to the person. You don't go to the media. You don't go to the courts. The family stays in the family. Everybody who has a family knows that unless you really want money and you don't think they're going to give it to you. So you hope a judge does. Yeah, Trish, we have covered lots of stories involving family members suing each other. It happens all the time uh, with celebrities. Uh, you think there's any merit to what you understand this lawsuit to be all, all about? Um, I don't think that there is much merit to the suits as far as the stories that were told. Who knows? You know, bratting on your siblings and family members has become quite fashionable lately and seems to sell some books to certain people. Um, the 1.25 million, she says she's back addicted to alcohol and drug abuse and mentally unstable. I don't know what it's what it costs to stay at rehab in uh, Santa Monica or Malibu, but um, it might be running up there a few hundred thousand dollars. But she did say she sent him a settlement offer in the um, and hasn't haven't heard back yet. So they could probably make this go away if they tried. Bolger, Trish was looking directly at you when she said, I, I don't know what it costs to be in <laughs> rehab. Uh, just so you know, promises, you can do it for free. You can do it online. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's kind of fun. Betty Ford, not too expensive. Asking, asking for a friend. <laughs> well, it just sounds like Mariah Carey hasn't told her sister lately that she loves her. Uh, someone that always did tell us that they recently love us is Rod Stewart. And apparently he and his son taking a plea deal facing battery charges against a Florida hotel security guard. I didn't know Rod Stewart and his son were a threat to security guards at all. Rod and little Rod, yeah, were involved in altercation. Uh, New Year's Day, January 20th, Sean Stewart allegedly pushed a security guard who was, I guess, preventing him from entering uh, part of the uh, Breakers Hotel in Palm Beach. And as a result of that, uh, a individual fell backwards and was injured. Uh, the allegation again continues that Rod Stewart punched one of these individuals in the left ribcage area with a closed fist. Now, Rod Stewart is 76. You know, he's a spry 76. He watches moves, but I'm not sure, again, with the theme of what the damages are. You know, everything is a lawsuit, thank God, because we wouldn't have much content to cover. But, uh, Trish, were you aware that uh, Rod was still, you know, fighting in his in his later days? Well, funny you should ask, Rich, because I met Rod Stewart in Las Vegas a couple of years ago. And I'm probably about nine inches taller than him. So it was, <laughs> it was a little shocking to read at 76 years old in his sight. He would take on a uh, bouncer at a party that he was apparently not invited to. So a little bit shocking, not shocking. A lawsuit evolved. Um, you know, it's a celebrity and uh, there was some physical altercation. So not surprised by the resulting lawsuit. Bolger, I can't believe there's a party on this particular planet that Rod Stewart couldn't get into or has to fight his way to get into. He's Rod friggin' Stewart. Come on. Look at that Tonight was not the night. Uh, it was just funny because... He's, he's begging at the table like, but I'm Rod Stewart. And his kids are like, but I'm Rod Stewart. That's even more terrifying. Than you're, <laughs> if you're jacked up and you're boozed up a little, now you're taking the fact that you got shunned by a private party because they don't know who Rod Stewart is. And so you take it out on this poor security card. <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's, 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 not, it's not pathetic. It's just weird because you could tell probably there was booze involved. It was late night. I know the Breakers. It's down in Florida. I've been to it before. It's very posh. So it's like if you can't convince the table in there, 
imagine like just like you just get a thumbs down from him. He's like, but I'm wrong, let's do it. Don't you get it? Like, nope. And the kid's like, that's my dad. It's like, I don't know who you are. You're not on the list. And then punch. <laughs> All right, well, fit. Favorite, we got to go favorite around the horn and favorite Rod Stewart songs. Joe, you might be a little bit too young to answer, but maybe you've done some research on it, or maybe you could actually read the paper uh, in front of you. But your fa- favorite Rod Stewart song, what do you got, Joe? You know, honestly, my mom was a big fan of him, and yeah. uh, I just never, I never really enjoyed it, but I'd listened to him kind of a lot, and yeah. uh, it's got to be Hot Legs. Hot Legs is great. Good song. Bolger, what's your favorite Rod? Rod the Mod, dude. No question. Infatuation. I love the video. I like the 80s vibe. I like the blonde. That is a great 80s video where he's stalking that woman. And yeah, the, you know. the old uh, the old PI is trailing him the whole time and punches him in the face. If great he would have countered with a rib shot, maybe he would have been up better off, you know? Right. Should have paid attention. Infatuation. Uh, Trish Poe, what's your favorite Rod song? You went to his concert. You must have a million choices. Um, you know what? I'll, I'll take a different uh, route. He did a version of the impressions. People get ready. And yes. uh, he recorded that. That was a great song. I have to say my all time favorite, but if so I'm, I'm riding big... in the car with the top down, then whole different story. <laughs> yeah. I'm a bit, that's a great song by the way. Um, and he does a great version that the, the album that he does the best on is, is unplugged, you know, back when MTV had a series called unplugged, which was uh, mm-hmm. artists, uh, unplugging and doing acoustic version him and ron wood did those songs and some other great songs so the unplug album is great i'm a big rod stewart fan i love uh the first cut is the deepest is one of my favorite songs of all time and actually all the cut it's been it's been covered by a bunch including cheryl crow she does an incredible version but the first cut is the deepest is my go-to rod stewart jam that's that's apparently what the security guard said too when they asked how hard uh, it hit. <laughs> so the first cut was the deepest when he, when he stabbed, <laughs> With his, with his knife, with his knight sword, maybe he he stabbed him. That's <laughs> to you. <laughs> <laughs> Moving from uh, Rod Stewart and his uh, abusive self to lying food companies, uh, a Pittsfield woman claims Briars is lying to us, and apparently Subway now has to defend their tuna. When will the insanity stop, my friends? All these food companies trying to allege that their food contains products that they don't. Uh, so the first lawsuit uh, involves uh, Breyer's vanilla bean ice cream. And the lawsuit alleges that it's just plain vanilla. That uh, while the packaging alleges that it contains real vanilla bean and it has a picture of a bean, um, it says the word vanilla bean, um, it has an image of a flowering vanilla plant. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds a little scary. Um, it actually does not contain any vanilla beans. And as a result, she's alleging that it is deceptive, misleading, and unjust. And that it actually, in Massachusetts, constitutes unjust enrichment for, un- for uh, wrongful conduct. Um, because, again, vanilla is only a flavor and not an ingredient. In other fake product news, Subway is fighting back against an allegation, a lawsuit, that their tuna is not real tuna, that the uh, product is a mixture, I'm quoting here from the lawsuit, a mixture of various concoctions that do not constitute tuna, which have been blended together by Subway to imitate the appearance of tuna. This is a lawsuit that was filed on January 21st in federal court in California. 
now, interestingly, the plaintiffs don't come up with what the actual concoction is. I guess it's not their burden, they feel. All they know is it's not tuna. I don't know what it is, but I'm not eating tuna. Of course, Subway has fought back and answered that, yes, this is tuna. It's one of our most popular sandwiches, they said. Uh, our, our restaurants receive pure tuna, mix it with mayonnaise, and serve it on freshly made sandwiches to our guests. That it's 100% wild-caught tuna. Now, uh, Trish, we often on this show cover what we call lawsuit trolls, right? People who scour the internet and look for ways to sign up class actions. I defend a lot of these. I will be the first to tell you that a lot of them are complete nonsense. I represent lots of restaurants, lots of food companies, and lots of them are nonsense. On the other hand, you know, there are some that uh, have made changes in the food industry that are valuable. What are your thoughts on the vanilla slash tuna epidemic that's going on in, in, our, in our society? Well, I have to wonder, are these the same group of plaintiff attorneys that brought the action against McDonald's for their food, creating obesity? Um, I'm not sure if it is the same guys, but um, personally, I was not fooled when I picked up a can of Tang. And though, despite it had the slices of oranges, it was crystallized. And I was not surprised to learn that real orange juice was not part of the recipe. Shocker. Yes. Absolute shocker. But Bolger, you do expect that when you eat tuna at uh, Subway, it's actually tuna. It's a tail of two fish. Uh, so you got, it's kind of interesting because the, out of the two, the one that has more merit is the vanilla, but the troll is so clearly the tuna being like, that's not tuna. It's like they're they're pulling a one-armed band up being like, that can't be com- components of tuna. And they're like, yeah, it really is. And they'll show you the ingredients in court and they'll be like, didn't taste like tuna. I'll be like, I don't care what you think it tastes like or how you feel about it. It's tuna on the menu. It's tuna on the sandwich. Tuna's tuna. Now, if you don't like the tuna, go to Doug's place up the street or go to Roger's place or Susan's place. But I just, the, that one is so Susan's house. Susan's house of tuna, you mean? Yeah, Susan's house tuna. I, by the way, I love it. Beautiful tuna. She's got good stuff. Uh, she's got a little bone for tuna. It's really good. Um, but I, I do have to say uh, the, the vanilla bean one, I get exactly what you're saying, too, where you know that tang's not that. You're going to put an orange on. But we really do have to make sure ingredients and pictures do match because there's a lot of people out there that are not right. They are not the sharpest tool in the shed. So when they look at it, they're like, if they, if their doctor said, do you have any vanilla bean in your diet? She'd be like, they'd be like, I certainly do. Cause part of that is what you see should be what you get with that. And, and it's always a area of gray, but I always like the, when it's really something that they front on the center, be like, this car has power windows. You get in there. This car does not have power windows. That's, that's where it gets to be a problem for me because it's so on its face where like if the person's going for a big payday, I don't like it. If they're going for the principle of getting the right advertising, I love it. I would, I would love that. You know what's also an area of gray, Bolger? What's that? Subway tuna. Hoyo. <laughs> oh. Well, not too long ago, I remember Taco Bell uh, had to defend that their Crunchwrap Supreme was actually meat. And so what they did was they started selling Crunchwrap Supremes for 88 cents because they said the meat is 88 percent meat. Everything else is spices and seasoning. So that's that's what they did. And Joe, by the way, the other good part of it, this is why they're thinking it. They're like, tuna doesn't come with an ice cream scooper. It can't be tuna. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, Speaking of discounted pleasure. 
A Peruvian lawyer has been caught having sex during a virtual court hearing. I mean, what better way to end off our grab bag, my friends, with a the you know the seemingly weekly story of some lawyer in South America getting caught for having sex on a Zoom hearing. I mean, if you've seen it once, you've seen it a thousand times. But you know, it's it's great. Uh, this was uh, I can't even do the name justice. Hector Robles. Uh, there's a couple of names in between there. He was taking part in a virtual hearing in uh, Peru, and uh, he was uh, the the hearing was involving a gang, which it's called Los Z de Chen Chamayo, and he uh, was caught on camera, completely naked. And uh, I like that the article says kissing an equally naked woman. I mean, you know, there might be a disproportion there, but. The, the article makes sure to say that she was equally naked. I'm not sure. Really paints a exactly. picture for you, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. So she was a- equally naked, and they were, you know, having uh, having Peruvian, you know, lawyer sex. And uh, the judge, Judge Torres, was outraged. Immediately called a halt to the hearings and uh, said that Robles uh, had, had disrespected the dignity of the court. He lacked the honor and dignity of the profession. Um, and the bar association got involved, and they said they strongly rejected the obscene acts and they called for a swift investigation. Um, so, you know, not a great day for this guy. I don't know if he knew that the camera was on or his, you know, alarm wasn't working that day or he was trying to prove a point, but John, I know you sympathize because you've had some, uh, you know, you've had it some happens at least twice a week for me. Yeah. Frustrating, but you know what? I, I hate when people hit record on it. That gets awkward. Yes. But it, I, it was definitely out. <laughs> <laughs> and it was definitely ordered. So it was, they, I mean, when I looked at that, it was one of those, you kind of feel for someone and then you realize, okay, of the like 80 things that you don't want to be caught during a meeting on Zoom during pandemic, like that's got to be top three, that top one, maybe that I can't like, aside from that, maybe murder or something like what, that's got to be right up there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Trish, have you, you, I know you're in Zoom meetings all the time. Have you seen anything like this in one of your Zoom meetings? I have not seen anything like this. And uh, I just have no words for this. I didn't know it was a thing in South America, to be honest with you. So until I read this article, I didn't know that it happened with such frequency. Yeah, apparently that's frowned upon. I mean, the law offices are so sexy. They're so sexy down there. It's all the books. Maybe everybody can be a lawyer. I mean, his his defense has got to be, I mean, apparently that's frowned upon in the Peruvian legal system, Judge. That's news to me. It seems a little, it seems a little nitpicky, but okay. I mean, you know, everyone gets everyone gets a first warning, but had you told me at some point that it was frowned upon, kind of the Costanza, you know, defense. You know, if, if you want me to pixelate that, I can definitely pixelate that. And that's fair call, fair call, but I I don't know if that's really wrong. Yeah, I don't know if that's right. <laughs> Jeez, that's hilarious. Well, thankfully, we got somebody to uh, make an example of so that it never will happen again. <laughs> Trish, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Thank Joe. You. Thanks, Rich. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...